The Lord be with you. According to Luke, glory to you, O Lord. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, When you pray, Say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not subject us to the final test. And he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend to whom he goes at midnight and says, Friend, Lend me three loaves of bread. For a friend of mine has arrived at my house from a journey, and I have nothing to offer him. And he says in reply from within, Do not bother me. The door has already been locked, and my children and I are already in bed. I cannot get up to give you anything. I tell you, if he does not get up to give the visitor the loaves because of their friendship, he will get up to give him whatever he needs because of his persistence. And I tell you, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you would hand his son a snake, when he asks for a fish, or hand him a scorpion when he asks for an egg. If you then, who are wicked, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. All right. The name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, if someone were to ask you, who are you? How would you ask, answer that question? Think about it. it sounds like it's so simple, but when you actually think about it, well, that's actually pretty profound. Who are you? by the way. So some random person runs up to you and asks you that question. Most of us will respond with our name. Oh, I'm Brian. I am Logan. I am Mike. I am Arnold. But then what if somebody continues to push and says, well, all right, well, who are you then, Mike? Who are you, Logan? Who are you, Arnold? Who are you, Brian? But again, I think most of us will respond to that question with what we do. Oh, I'm a rancher. I'm a police officer. I'm a teacher. Which is all good. It's part of who we are. 
But aren't we more than what we do? You know, athletes, especially professional athletes, many of them, when they retire, because they tend to retire young. 35 is considered old age in professional sports. Huh? You're ancient. They retire when they're in their 30s or their 40s. And oftentimes, athletes will report that they launch into a depression when they retire. Because their whole entire lives, you think about it, is geared up to be the best at their craft. And they spend hours and hours every single day to achieve a certain level of skill. Absolutely amazing. And their identity is so rooted in who and what they do. And all of a sudden, you take that away, what happens? All of a sudden, they have to say, well, who am I now? If I'm not that starting quarterback anymore. Who am I if I'm not that amazing basketball player or, or, or he's filling the blank. So then that points to something. We're deeper than what we do. It's not, doesn't encapsulate us then. So something more to that question, who are you then? It's more than our title. More than our title. Has to be. It has to be. You know, when the Nazis were spreading, they were absolutely stunningly cold in their brilliance. You know, when they set up their, their network of concentration camps. One of the concentration camps they set up was that they, they arrested many Catholic priests, by the way. They killed thousands of us when we stood up against them in Europe. And what the Nazis would do, they would, they would put the priests in certain barracks. And they would treat the priests with certain special privileges. They would give them better food, less harsher work. And they would treat them a lot better than their regular prisoners. Why? Because they knew the priests gave the people hope, the other prisoners. And so the Nazis said, we have to break the bond between the priests and the other prisoners. And so what better way than to slither in jealousy within the people? <laughs> because think about that. If you're, if you're in a prison camp and another group of prisoners have better treatment, what's, what's that going to do to you? It's going to cause you to become bitter, isn't it? Jealousy slowly creeps in. And what do you begin to do? You begin to hate the other. You see, the brilliance of why in the Ten Commandments our Lord says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's goods. Why? Because the moment you start looking at somebody at, at, at their life and you say, you know what, I want that. All of a sudden now, within the family, you see them as competitors rather than family. I mean, how many of us can share when sometimes I, I see this constantly, it breaks my heart when, when a family member dies and there's a huge inheritance that the family has to, has to negotiate and, and share? Oh, how many times have I seen that tear a family apart? Why? Because it inserts itself, and everybody is trying to fight for, for their piece of the pie. And a family becomes, I mean, it happens in my own family, people fighting. So the Nazis were actually pretty brilliant. In one of their concentration camps, the largest one was a place called Auschwitz. It's in modern-day Poland, outside of uh, Krakow. And they had a policy there that every night they would do the prison count. They would line up the prisoners in this huge courtyard, and it's, it's the, probably the best preserved of all the concentration camps. The Nazis did their most brutal work there, 
Most people die from the Auschwitz than any other of their concentration camps. And they would line them up, the prisoners, every day, count them. And they had a policy. If one prisoner was missing, ten other prisoners would randomly be chosen to be starved. So that would create uh, a way for them to control the population. One particular day, September 7th of 1941, prisoners lined up. They do the counts. One is missing. And everybody knew what that meant. So the Nazi guard walks down the, the formation of all the prisoners who are lined up and just randomly begins to point. You. 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 And they finally chose the last one. It was a man by the name of Francis Golfczyk. And as the Nazi guard pointed at him, he, he fell to his feet and began to weep. My poor wife, he says. My poor children. Please. Please. And at that moment, as, as Francis was crying out, another man who was just a few rose down one step, steps forward out of formation, and he says, choose me instead. I want to die in his place. And the eyewitness account says that this man had a smirk on his face. Complete serenity. Choose me. I want to die in this place. The Nazi guard was so stunned at this man's courage. And he said, who are you? And this man simply said, I am a Catholic priest. You stupid priest, he responded. And amazingly, he relented and he actually switched places. Notice how this man answered that question, who are you? He didn't respond with his name or he didn't respond with a title. Rather, he responded with a relationship. Because as priests, it is not a job that we do. Rather, our deepest identity is rooted precisely in relationship. Priesthood means I am in a particular relationship to God and therefore in a particular relationship to the people entrusted to him. So he responds precisely in relationship. He recognizes relationship and therefore by recognizing that, that determined the trajectory and the meaning of his life. You see, it is only in relationship can we delve deeper into that pivotal question of what it means to be alive, what, what is the meaning of my life now. Not simply in what we do. And that is the beauty of what our Lord is, is opening up in this amazing gospel today. Here where we are given and taught for the first time the Our Father. Probably history's most famous prayer. Literally, millions of people say this prayer every single day, if you think about it. There are two billion Christians on earth. 
So you better believe there are millions of people every single day praying this prayer. We can recite this prayer half asleep, I bet. We would learn it as kids. So now again, imagine, in this gospel reading, it says in the beginning, it begins with, that Jesus was praying in a certain place. So Jesus now is praying. Imagine, what does Jesus look like praying? Imagine that. What does he look like praying? Is Jesus kneeling? What does he look like? Is his face buried in his open palms? Is he mouthing silent prayers with his lips? Well, however he looked like, it must have been utterly amazing. Because it said that as they watched Jesus praying, his disciples were shocked. So there's something about Jesus' relationship and in his prayer life. There's something weird. I don't, I don't know what's going on, but something weird is going on with that Jesus guy. He's praying in a very intense way. And so naturally the disciples said to him, when he was done, Jesus, teach us. What is the secret to your prayer. Then notice his next response. He doesn't respond with technique. No. He doesn't say, okay, stand up. Now, now take three deep breaths. Breathe slowly. Hold for five seconds. And No, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't give him the nuts and bolts of, of what it means to pray. Rather, notice the first word he says. Father. What he just did here, Jesus, was that he first taught humanity, said, you want to learn how to pray? You want to recognize the true meaning of prayer? Recognize the relationship you are in first. Recognize that God is your Father. Because once you penetrate that mystery, all of a sudden everything changes. Now, in English, this is, again, this is hard in English because in English, father is very formal. I don't know about you, uh, I don't call my dad father. How many of us, I don't know, maybe some of you do, you, you wake up in the morning, good morning, father. Good morning, son. In your tuxedo, when you wake up in the morning, it's, it's, it's really amazing. So formal, you guys, lighten up. But no, the connotation here, lost in English, but when you go back to the original language Jesus spoke, the word here is Abba, which more accurately translated means daddy. Daddy. Or Papa. It's a beautiful image. What Christ here just taught us, he says that you, your deepest identity now, which will Define the meaning of your life. Is that first and foremost, you are sons and daughters of your Heavenly Father. See, that, my friends, becomes the deepest meaning of who we are now. And here's the beauty of it, because when, when we penetrate this mystery, everything changes. Because no longer is my meaning of my life or the definition or my value or my worth determined by what I do. Or what I fail to do. I am not defined by my sins. I'm not defined by my failures. 
I'm not defined by anything else, but rather my first and utter identity is that I am a son of God. I am a daughter of God. And nothing could strip that away from me. You see, when when we penetrate this mystery, it frees us. Because that means that no matter what happens in our life, that identity can never be stripped from us. And that no matter what happens, I will always be this. You know, Maximilian Kolbe, it says, as they starved the ten prisoners to death, it said that they sung themselves all the way to the, when, the, when the bodies finally just gave out. It said that Father Maximilian Kolbe sat there and led the other prisoners in song, singing, just singing hymns. And oh, how the Nazis guards were, ter- were just utterly frustrated at them. These prisoners are singing songs and we're starving them to death. Father Maximilian Skolbe, he was so stubborn that he didn't die no matter how much water or food they kept from him. He kept living to the point where they finally had to inject him with a, a chemical to finally stop his heart. Because he wouldn't die. <laughs> you stubborn Christians, you just don't die. You see, my friends, when we start seeing our relationship, this whole Christian thing, all of the rules and regulations, it changes. All of a sudden, if this whole Christian apparatus that we're involved in, if we see that rather, if God is my father and I'm a son and daughter, then I'm I'm part of the family of God, it provides new meaning. And we must penetrate that mystery first. Otherwise, if we fail to, if we miss this step, Christianity will always be cold, distant, something up in the clouds. My friends, it is much more than that. Because we have the audacity to say, Daddy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In 1981, I'm sorry, 83, Maximilian Kolbe was declared a saint by John Paul II in Vatican City. Tens of thousands of people showed up, and guess who had front row seats? Francis Kovnivchek, his wife and his children. And he died to a ripe old age of 93. And he spent his entire life, all the way up to, to, to he died, going around the world and sharing what Father Maximilian Kolbe did to save his life in Auschwitz. And I love that story, and I think it appeals to you as well, especially to my brothers in here as men, because it shows us as men, we, especially as fathers, we are at our best when we defend, protect, and live for the other. Our manhood is better when we do that, when we live for the other. And that's what fatherhood, I think, at its best does. And that's why Father Maximilian Kolbe, that's what he did. And when we live like that, look what happens. It brings about life. 
How many generations now of that family exist? Because one father laid down his life to defend and to protect his sons and daughters. And as men, that's when we're better. 